care about the climate? Know a writer who does? Submissions just opened for Grist Magazine's free annual climate fiction contest, Imagine 2200, Climate Fiction for Future Ancestors. Grist is looking for short stories that envision the next 180 years of climate progress, imagining worlds of abundance, adaptation, reform, and hope. The Imagine contest emphasizes hope, justice, and solutions. It's an invitation to imagine a future in which solutions to the climate crisis flourish and help bring about radical improvements. And it's a call to craft stories that challenge the status quo of extraction, oppression, and violence. Winners will be published on Grist's site in an immersive climate fiction collection and receive a cash prize. Plus, there's no submission fee. The deadline to submit your story is June 13th. For all the details, go to grist.org imagine. Or you can find all of these details in the accompanying transcript for today's episode as well. Again, check it all out at grist.org imagine. Today's episode is also brought to you by Katie Holton's The Language of Trees, a gorgeously illustrated and deeply thoughtful collection in which Holton gifts readers her tree alphabet and uses it to masterfully translate and illuminate beloved, lost, and new original writing in praise of the natural world. With an introduction from Ross Gay and featuring writings from over 50 contributors, including Ursula K. Le Guin, Ada Limon, Robert McFarlane, Zadie Smith, Radiohead, Amy Nezakumatatil, James Glick, Elizabeth Colbert, Plato, and Robin Wall Kimmerer. The Language of Trees is an astonishing fusion of storytelling and art and a deeply beautiful celebration of trees through the ages. The Language of Trees is out on April 4th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Longtime listeners of Between the Covers know very well that my questions are different than most, both in length and in form, almost like mini-essays, ones that hopefully prompt even longer and extended answers from the writers being asked them. The poet Simon Shia once said something on Twitter that I really loved. As far as I'm concerned, David Naiman doesn't have conversations with writers David writes beautiful, thought-provoking, collaborative essays in real time with them. I really like this notion that I'm co-writing an essay in real time with my guest. And the reason I bring this up today is because in the middle of today's conversation, there are two back-to-back questions that are uncharacteristically long, even for me. And yet, they are actually the tiniest of remnants of what I ultimately didn't bring into today's conversation with Sharif Shanahan. Sometimes, one of the things that attracts me to pursuing a given conversation is actually an ignorance on my part, or more charitably put, a curiosity about something I don't know or that I don't have experience with. For instance, when I learned that James Hanahan's book, Pilot Imposter, was in conversation, poem by poem, with Pessoa's poetry. Because I'd never read Pessoa and had been 
very curious about him nonetheless. That was an added allure to pursuing a conversation with Hanahan about his book. And then there are conversations like the one with Miriam Chancy, where I feel like I still haven't fully found my footing from the vertigo I experienced, learning all that I learned about Haitian history and how and why and to what depth and breadth Haiti had been punished after successfully becoming the first black republic. Vertigo and shock and a little bit of shame that I was just learning this now, this late in my life, but also a lot of excitement about how it reshaped so many things I thought I knew. And I say all of this because when I interviewed the Moroccan novelist, Abdel Ataya, who engages not only with his own life story as a queer Arab man who grew up in a Muslim family in Morocco, but also with questions of colonialism, gender, blackness, indigeneity, and language, that conversation was one that made visible to me the immensity of what I didn't know about blackness in North Africa, about the intersections, tensions, and histories between Arabness and blackness, and Arabness and indigeneity in the Maghreb. And I knew that Sharif Shanahan's debut collection grappled some with all of this, and that talking with him would be an opportunity to gain a greater understanding or the beginnings of one as we talked about his poetry. But as I read his second collection, the one we talk about today, a collection equally engaged with the complex relationship of Arabness, Blackness, and Whiteness in his own life as a mixed-race American poet, I discovered that while the first book has poems that are more directly geopolitical and or engaging with North African history and blackness and anti-blackness, his latest book engages more with the ways these structural and historical issues find themselves in the most intimate interpersonal relations, whether how they ripple through families, between lovers, with one's therapist, among one's peers, or simply moving through the world. So, like with every conversation, the email that goes out to supporters is similarly full of the things referenced in today's conversation and resources associated with the topics we discuss. But this time, it is probably twice as long, or maybe three times as long. The first half pertains to what we do speak about and ends with a very long section of resources that corresponds to these two questions I'm referring to that happen in the middle, the historical and geopolitical questions that I do ask. This section contains the many articles from African anthropologists, Arab manuscript experts, Moroccan historians, and more, because the material is speaking into a silence and a taboo, a silence that both exists in the cultural sphere, but also has affected and extended into the academic one. And because of this, I wanted to make sure you have all the material I reference or that formed my questions so you can engage with it as well if you desire. And then the second half of the resources is a lot of material I encountered that was super fascinating that I probably would have used if we had been talking about his debut, 
but didn't feel right to shoehorn into this conversation. And yet I wanted to share it with you nonetheless. One area that we do touch on when we, when we talk today, but that forms a larger presence in the resources, is about the Moroccan football team at the World Cup and the amazing amount of both joyous and incredible as well as fraught and controversial questions that were raised about Moroccan identity. You could be completely allergic to sports and I think still find all of this material mesmerizing. And at the heart of today's conversation with Sharif is the question around how does one speak? How does one make art from one's position when one's identity is itself defined by its instability, if one's identity escapes categorization, where the available words to describe you would reduce you. And not only what would one's poems look like, one's language sound like, if it was able to create the space for that instability, but also what does Sharif's own exploration of his particular situation reveal to all of us about identity at large and the construction of self and what the construction achieves or forecloses. One of the cornerstones of my preparation for today was a recent interview of Sharif by Safia Hillo in the Arab American literature and art magazine Mizna, a journal that centers the work of Arab Southwest Asian and North African artists. But for this particular issue, there is, in their words, an all-black takeover team, with Safia as the guest editor of the issue. And it is really incredible, as is the magazine more generally. Mizna has done something similar to what Jewish Currents did after my conversations with Claire Schwartz and Daniel Mendelssohn when they sent me copies of relevant issues corresponding to those conversations. Mizna has sent copies of the Black Takeover issue, as well as copies of some other recent issues, including one that is dedicated to a tribute of Etel Adnan and a special folio they published with the Asian American Writers Workshop in tribute to Sarah Hagazi, a queer Egyptian activist imprisoned and tortured after flying a rainbow flag at a concert, and who died in exile. There are several different sample bundles of these issues and or the folio available for new supporters of the show. And Sharif is adding a reading from what will ultimately become his third book, an epistolary and polyvocal work called Dear Whiteness, adding a reading of an excerpt from this to the bonus audio. The copies of Mizna the bonus audio archive, and the encyclopedic resource email that accompanies each episode are only a small number of possible benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show and joining the Between the Covers community. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Sharif Shanahan. stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical 
effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet Sharif Shanahan, has a BA in Comparative Literature and Creative Writing from Princeton. And after several years working in finance in London and New York, returned to school for an MA in Comparative Literature and Literary Translation from Dartmouth, followed by an MFA in Poetry from NYU. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Morocco, a Stegner Fellow at Stanford, has been program director of the Poetry Society of America, poetry editor at Psychology Tomorrow magazine, and is currently serving as guest editor at Poetry magazine. Shanahan has taught at California College of the Arts, NYU, Collegio di Milano in Italy, Stanford University, and is currently an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Northwestern University. His translations from Italian have appeared in Columbia University's translation journal, Circumference, at a public space, and have been performed by the Vienna Art Orchestra. Shanahan's poetry has appeared everywhere, from The New Yorker to The Nation. It's been anthologized in Seeding the Future of African American Poetry and in African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song, among other places and has been supported by fellowships from everywhere from the National Endowment of Arts to Cave Canem. His debut collection, Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing, with a starred review from Publishers Weekly, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and the Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award. Ilya Kaminsky called it lyrical and unforgiving, saying, I believe Shanahan is a rare kind of poet, because his voice is unrelenting and calm at once. He's both vividly empathetic and fiercely honest. And Yusuf Kumanyaka says, here in these pages, the politics of color is highly personal. In a time of bleaching creams and psychological erasures, where there's an attempt to diminish the African, this poet confronts himself and family head on. And in doing so, through wit and an astute sense of history, his poetry dares to affect the reader. These poems cross borders in the blood and through an imagination that challenges us. Today, we're talking to Sharif Shanahan about his second collection, just out from Tin House, called Trace Evidence. Publishers Weekly, in its starter view, says, quote, in this exquisite and affecting collection, Shanahan explores longing and alienation in queer and mixed-raced contexts with provocative and arresting language, 
He examines the ways in which white supremacy and heteronormativity make those who do not fit neatly into categories feel like outsiders in their own lives. Out of pain and loss, joy, sex, state-sanctioned violence, and nomadic longing, Sharif constructs a comprehensive identity and an artistic vision that is dynamic and brilliantly conveyed. And three U.S. poet laureates agree. Our current laureate, Ada Limon, calls the book Dangerously Wise, Wholly Human, and Deeply Rooted in Attention, a book for anyone who has ever questioned where they belonged. Our 22nd U.S. Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith, adds that these poems remind her of the period after a great struggle, when body and psyche recover one another. Trace evidence is an utter revelation. And finally, our 19th U.S. Poet Laureate, Natasha Trethaway, says, Shreve Shanahan is examining race and sexuality in ways I have not seen. Trace Evidence mines the most intimate reaches of our colonial past to ask these important questions. How do we live and love with so much betrayal? Betrayal of the self by family, lovers, friends, the body's betrayal of itself. Notably, the book contends with an anti-blackness beyond the familiar narratives of our contemporary moment. Here, it emanates from the Arab world through the very parent who confers blackness to her children, offering nuance and complexity to the ways in which we tend to consider the subject. And while there is a through line of pain in this book, as it explores the liminality of mixed-race identity, time, and mortality, it neither ends in despair nor seeks to assign blame. Sharif's is a necessary voice. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sharif Shanahan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So even though your book will be out when people hear this, we are actually talking before the release of Trace Evidence. So most of the readings of yours I've watched, while they've had you reading poems from Trace Evidence often, they've centered around your work in the debut. And you always would preface these readings, like you do in your bio on your website as well, by saying that you grew up in the Bronx with an Irish-American father and a Moroccan mother who's both black and Arab. And you often also talk about how during what was supposed to be a Fulbright year in Morocco, you're in a horrible bus accident where you were ultimately medevaced to Switzerland and after multiple surgeries, spent that year not in the ancestral homeland of your mother and her family, but in your childhood bedroom in New York City. And while the accident took place after your first book, both books engage with questions of your family lineage, with race and identity, with blackness and anti-blackness, with Morocco, with selfhood, with language in relation to all of it. So maybe we could start with the ways in which you feel like trace evidence is an extension of the questions that animate your debut and or the ways you feel like trace evidence is a departure from your debut? I do feel that trace evidence is an extension of the first book in a way. You know, it's certainly centered around the same concerns and questions, many of which, or perhaps all of which are unanswerable, which is kind of the point, right? For me, in part. 
I think what has less space in the second collection is the maternal relationship uh, and the the tension that the speakers in the first collection and then I in my life have contended with as a result of my mother's story, the way that she is racialized here, what that means for me and my brothers, right, who are of Moroccan heritage, but U.S. American, breastfed on U.S. American racism, as we all are, which is constitutive of this country. Not to say that we're all racists, obviously, but right, it's in the air, it's in the water. And that dissonance of self-concept that is generated by the culture of origin, the geography of origin, right? So there were there were poems that I wrote towards the first book that really engaged directly with the mother in a way that is uh in a way that's present in Trace Evidence, but the mother poems, if we can call them that, are really contained to three in the first section. You know, there's the title poem, Two Rooms Down the Hall and the Sears and Row book, and well, four, and then the, um, not the whole thing, but a large part of the story where over there she was Sadawi, Asmat, even Ibid over here, Black, right, that that one. So I think what feels different to me, the kind of essential quality that feels different to me between the two books is that the speaker, by the time we arrive at Trace Evidence, has held on to the answers that we all uh, can contend with and look at that, again, do not have answers, but for himself is clear about who he is, mm. where the journey of coming into that was part of what I was trying to spell out in the first book and demonstrate kind of in real time, actively beginning with these childhood poems, although I resisted a linear curation of, of both books, the coming into, right, is part and parcel, I think, of Into Each Room. And what we have in the second book, I believe, you know, in my own conscious making of it was someone beyond those questions as they dictated or informed how he would move through the world and how he would choose to identify and was now speaking from a subject position that was defined by its instability. There was a looking for a finite place that I think finally is unavailable, you know, um, but there, there is a agency, a self-possession inside an individual speaker who is able to state as he does in the title poem for us here. Now I will be the first of our line, right? Like that certainty, that conviction, that clarity of self and circumstance for me feels like the essential difference. Both books are about identity, as you've suggested, in a manner that's very specific to your own identity. But as you've also alluded to, I think, the ways your particular identity speaks to questions of identity, I think, extend far beyond you. And I would like to start on the conceptual and philosophical level, on the sort of linguistic and existential level, and then move into the granular details of your specific situation which I think your collection mostly does as well. So the first, the first poem in the first section, Mulatto Quadroon, sort of sets up, I think, what you're suggesting around defining oneself in one's instability, essentially. So maybe we could start with the questions that it poses by hearing the poem. And then after we hear the poem, we can, we can spend some time in the aura of those questions. Mulatto quadroon, somewhere between. 
I want to tell you what for me it has been like. To speak at all, I must occupy a position in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. Though some say such non-position is my position, speak from that placeless place outside the system, etc., some would say and have said. If the placeless place is created by terms of the system, then it must be within the system, even if it appears otherwise. And so it may be that the position presumed to be of body might better be regarded as a position of thought or a receptivity to possible experience as conceived by the still implausible eye of a man who defined the flimsy self he carried against those whom he did not understand or know or in any real sense see. And if the possible vision of that implausible eye accounted for you in name only, then filed you under consequence, side effect. It is not that the system fails to position you, it positions you actively and specifically nowhere, so that you appear on the outside, but remain within. Or you appear within, but remain on the outside. Which is to say, in other words, a part and a part. And so, if to speak in a particular social world, I must occupy a position and that world consists of positions that are clear, but none of which clearly I occupy, then it may be that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what for me it has been like. And so. Been listening to Sharif Shanahan read from his latest collection, Trace Evidence. So. I'd like to speak together into these unanswerable questions. When you say, to speak at all, I must occupy a position in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. And then to have the poem land on the line, it may be that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what for me it has been like. To have these statements come very early in this collection, that maybe language itself is foreclosing the possibility of of self-knowing or self-expression. And yet at the same time, paradoxically, it feels like your expression against language's capacity seems to itself open up possibilities for us to know you and to hear you. I I want to spend some time with this. The placement of the poem here, the placement of these questions here, in relationship to defining oneself through one's instability. Thank you for that, David. That that poem very clearly to me needed to be toward the beginning of the collection. And you know, wh- one thing that I would point out to listeners who may not have a copy of the book is that the very first poem in the collection before the first section begins is a poem called Colonialism, which is a narrative fragment, a memory of, you know, a young boy speaker crossing the street Um, into traffic in Morocco with his Moroccan mother and his two brothers. You know, these are U.S. American children on the divider, and the boy rushes into traffic, and uh, the mother eventually crosses over, and there's this encounter. 
And it felt really important to me to start the collection with that poem as the lens through which to read each of the three sections that are to come. Specifically because I knew, well, one of it, for many reasons, but one of the reasons was that Mulata Quadroon somewhere between as an opening to the entire collection would not have expressed the geographic origin of the questions and of the blackness within this particular family in a, in a way that feels crucial, in a way that is, is really constitutive of the questions, right? And so we arrive at Mulata Quadroon, and another aspect of that poem that readers might not be able to, or listeners might not be able to hear is that the those words are actually in quotation marks in the title as a way to kind of foreground that the, the object of inquiry in the poem, as much as it is about the experience of inhabiting or not inhabiting one of those labels, is also about language, is, is naming and the influence of these categories, uh, these taxonomies on how we can communicate and what is even possible. You know, I think as you've expressed, the, the poem resists a clean and easy landing, right? It exists in acknowledgement of the complication of the speaker's position, there is a question of, of whether or not one can really communicate in a way that is comprehensible when inside a social context that does not account for them, really, that does not allow them to be legible in a way that is recognizable, familiar to the other individuals in the social context and how that position might eclipse the very possibility of language. And poetry, or that poem in particular, comes in as a kind of antidote in a way, or at least a resistance to it, because we, of course, understand by the time we reach the end of the poem a little bit more about what it has been like for the speaker, although it's in this lyrically expressed meditative way. And so that really, for me, as the portal into the into the into the collection, felt really crucial because within the first two poems we established geography and racial instability, and also the ways in which that complicates communication, which is to say, commune, touching, seeing one another, knowing one another, you know. And I loved what you said earlier about how you wanted to frame the conversation that you wanted to start with the sort of conceptual or philosophical and then get into the granular, because as much as the poems seem to be about identity, these are poems that explore mixed race identity, these are poems that explore Blackness in the Arab world, whatever it might be, for me, the, the grief at the generative level of many of the poems is really to do with the separateness of our species and how we have become unknowable to one another in some respects and language as a fundamental vehicle for knowing one another and receiving one another is already implicated from the very first poem of the first section that's a great segue into what i want to ask you about around the separateness of the species. When I think of this question of language's capacity, I think there's one way that this can be viewed as universal, as I think you're suggesting, that points to perhaps a translational aspect to any word, that when I say I feel sad, I'm translating that feeling into whatever available vocabulary I have. And that word sad both does and doesn't represent 
what I'm feeling. And 20 people who say the same sentence, I feel sad, are having 20 very different experiences. But here we're talking about language and its failures around questions of core identity. A, a lot of writers of color who come on the show really push back against universalizing experience, particularly because of the way for millennia the white male writer has been the default voice for the universal. Not always as obviously foregrounded as the we of Walt Whitman, but as sort of a cultural default that sometimes we might not even notice that this is the default. I think of Natalie Diaz, Solma Sharif, Dion Brand, and also Claire Schwartz, um, all of them evacuating words like we and citizen and even human from what they would consider an unearned goodwill stored within them. Words that end up erasing and excluding who is in the we, who is a citizen, who is considered a human and given human regard. But in many places where you've talked about your own work, it feels like you take another path or maybe to the same place or maybe to a different place. And that's where I wanted to explore. For instance, in your personal statement for your NEA fellowship, it begins, born into a mixed race, binational family in the Bronx, I have from youth navigated complex questions of intersecting histories, geographies, and identities. In particular, the experience of not being seen, ethnoculturally and racially, and with it not being heard, marked my early life so constitutively as to become an existential echo. I did not, could not exist in a social world whose terms did not exactly account for me. From that social position, I naturally sought any person, experience, book, painting, photograph, anything I could find that reached beyond constructed social divisions to a sense of unity or oneness, to a plane of human experience not only available to all, constituted by all. Also in this collection itself, you say you don't believe in interdependence because it implies separateness, which you believe is false. And recently on the Poetry Magazine podcast, where you appeared to talk about your guest editorship, you said you were not interested in erasing difference, but you were interested in those moments where a construction of identity, whatever that construction is, comes down. So I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about unity, universality, shared experience, bridging the gaps of difference in light of the discourse happening around the legacy of this historically. I don't think this we you are conjuring outside of your poetry in these conversations is the same as Whitman's we. And I'd love to hear uh, what you think about it. I have so been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for that. For that question, um, I believe that our initial state of being as we enter the world is of oneness, a spiritual, existential, metaphysical connectivity. And it's so slippery to talk about it because even connectivity would suggest separateness merged. And that's not what I mean. I mean, one vast thing that we are then partitioned out of into personhood, 
into uh, we're languaged and cultured and raced and gendered and named. And part of what I believe is happening in profound experiences of art is that that self, what we might call the ego or the self, lifts. And for a moment, we merge with the singing voice whose subjectivity that poem depends on, which is one of the paradoxes. The other paradox is that we are arriving at a languageless place, I believe. I believe silence and the ineffable are where the poem take us. And the paradox is that it does that through language, mm. right? And and that in these encounters with art, I, I think of the um, Anne Sexton line, the title is escaping. It's one of her most famous, but she says, and when we touch, we enter touch entirely, right? That's that's what I believe is happening. And so for me, the ruptures, you pointed to that, that point, the, the places where the constructedness uh, dissolves or falls apart would feel to, I think, a lot of people who are able to function and live and exist within a framework, a social framework, disruptive, problematic, threatening even to core identity and self-concept in terms of the world, ex their existential orientation to the world around them and to the people around them. And they felt that way to me too. Um, but for me, I have come to reframe them, those moments of rupture, as a kind of return or a reminder, a representation of the truth inside what we have constructed, which I would never suggest is not real. It's the first level of human experience, right? Like the social world, we are interfacing through the terms of the social world. I don't mean to say that because constructed, we can dismiss it all. What I mean to say is that there is something behind it, you know, and that because constructed, it therefore must in some way, in some respect, be challengeable be uh, fallible. Mm. There've got to be holes. There've got to be ways that it doesn't account for everything that is to come, you know, everything that happens after the establishment of a framework. And I feel like I may be moving away from your question. I like Is there that. a part of the question I'm missing, David? <laughs> <laughs> now that we're talking about God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we kind, we kind of are. Um, yeah, no, well, I mean, yeah. I, th I feel like you're evoking a we, it feels almost, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels almost like so many people talking now about entanglement and mycelial networks. Like I think of Ross Gay talking about entanglement and being beholden to others and it's in our entanglement and our beholdenness, um, that I think he's trying to speak from. It reminds me of that a little bit. Oh, I, rem I remember the other piece which was the the line in fig tree that says, you know, it implies, I don't believe in interdependence. It implies separateness, which is, which is false. And I do believe that. I, I really do believe that you and I are the same thing. And it's the kind of statement that would make people roll their eyes or point to all the very real and important ways in which you and I are not having the same experience or even similar experiences which again, I don't dismiss by making the statement that you and I are the same thing. You know, it's a simultaneous truth. And I think we tend to focus 
on the one aspect, right? On the here and now, the very real and understandably, right? The consequences of the identity categories that we have made and live inside of. And there's also this other piece, this pre-verbal piece, this piece that I have personally found to be transformative, healing, uh, inspiring, motivating, right? And in some, in some respects, and I think I said this in my conversation with Adrian, the truest thing available to me, because the, the available categories were always already contentious in my particular instance. They were always already challenged, refuted, disputed in a way that was could be crazy making if I didn't understand that no one can tell you who you are. Even if, even if the systems in which we live would purport to empower individuals to do so. So the separateness and, and the oneness, you know, I, I'm not at all interested in flattening our differences. I'm interested in the meanings that we have attached to them, what we've come to call them, how cultures and histories have been born out of them, you know, and how we can hold those differences and still be uh, here together in common purpose and objective. Well, right before this poem, so right after the poem we haven't heard yet, Colonialism, and right before Mulatto Quadroon, there's an epigraph to the first section by the Chinese philosopher Mengzi, whose Latinized name is Mencius, born in 372 BC which says, a sense of shame is the beginning of integrity. And I realize that shame in this sentence could mean many different things, and also that I don't know what it means for you, and how that shame relates to the poem and the section that follows. I, I think of something I mentioned in my conversation with Monica Yoon, which is largely an exploration of what she calls a poetics of deracination, I mentioned an idea of Gugi Watiango, that our bodies are our first field of knowledge. Mm -hmm. That if we begin from a place where our skin or our hair is wrong, or any non-normative aspect of our bodies is wrong, we build a knowledge without a foundation in his mind. Mm -hmm. And I think of a long Twitter thread you did about being mixed race, 18 tweets that I'm going to totally paraphrase, but you talk about, among other things, how despite your poetry, often looking at the painful aspects of your experience, that you genuinely love being mixed. You love the access you have to two totally different social and cultural worlds, and that the ambiguity of your body gives you access to certain contexts that you actually aren't by origin a part of at all. You quote a couple lines from a sonnet by Shara McCallum, a light-skinned black poet of mixed descent that go, you are so everywhere, so nowhere, in plain sight you walk through walls. And at one point you say, as I've grown to accept a certain instability of experience in terms of my racialization, a slipperiness that confers privilege in some contexts, and to be sure a total lack of privilege in others. I am anchored by knowing that my racial identity slash identities could never depend on anything other than the fact of them 
and certainly not on the racial pathology of the person looking at my body. If it did, my entire psychological existential orientation to the current terms of social identity would shift with each viewer racializing me anew, which would be madness. I'm not saying the different ways in which my body is read are without consequence. On the contrary, much of my poetry has emerged from this particular and dissonant aspect of my racial experience. I'm saying that only I get to tell you who I am. All of which makes me think of the two meanings of a part in the poem you read, a part of and a part from. I realize I might be putting two different things together, but I wonder about the epigraph. A sense of shame is the beginning of integrity. And what, if any, relationship it has to not being defined by how others perceive you, which in my mind feels like the opposite of what Mengzi is saying. But perhaps I'm reading a different connotation to the word shame and to the word integrity. The opposite of what he's saying. So in your in your reading, he's saying he's saying what? Sorry. That having shame is part of self-construction, of having integrity. That's the way I read it, as if it's the beginning maybe of human socialization to be mm-hmm. a, probably something to do with the awareness of others and not just mm-hmm. being in yourself, that shame and integrity. And I'm, I feel like perhaps he thinks of integrity as a good thing and that shame is, and that shame is the vehicle to it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't, I don't think the, the argument inside that statement or the way that I'm, you know, kind of anticipating the first section with that, with that epigraph is that shame need to be a part of having integrity or that one who, who has integrity also has shame necessarily. But I think shame as a emotional state, as a psychological orientation, which is distinct from guilt, right? Because guilt is having done wrong and shame is believing you are wrong, that something is defective, that that experience is a conduit or a channel to integrity through understanding what the circumstances are that have generated the shame in the first place, right? Like the the implicit ask of the shame is understanding from from where it emerged and how to contend with it so that one could arrive on the other side with integrity, with the integrity of kind of self-determined self-concept. I think the other and the gaze of the other is part of what generates the shame, but is finally not involved in the process of moving past it and kind of earthing one one's essence in there, or being earthed in one, one's essence and uh, finding the integrity. So, so to spend one more moment with your Twitter thread, um, it feels like you flip the dynamic on shame when you say, what I've found challenging is actually not being mixed per se, but the ways that the logic of legibility around which race and racial hierarchies is constructed purports to give authority over one's identity to anyone other than the the individual in question. And then later, erasure, racially, for me, is always most painful when by other black folk. But there's an irony in it that, for me, relieves the pain. 
it's not me they're erasing, not exactly, it's themselves, by projecting onto me and reinflicting an erasure which they've internalized. When it comes to that sense of quote-unquote authority, I have come to believe that it exists in direct proportion to one's own shame. So wily a thing, it can sometimes present as arrogance or even strength when it in fact corrodes. It's very, very sad and has in the most essential ways absolutely nothing to do with me. Because if you loved yourself, why in the hell would you need someone to be anything other than who they know themselves to be? Again, I stand by every word and actually hearing you read that back to me, I think, well, David, send that to me and maybe I have an essay there. (laughs) (laughs) It's God. I deleted it. It's amazing that you have that because I think it wasn't up for more than 15 minutes, you know? So yeah, I I stand by, by every word, you know, I think the, the shame in, in those tweets is really inside the individual who would deign to tell those around them who they are and who they are not, you know? There's one thing for my body to be interpreted in different ways, depending on who's looking. And that's the portion of the instability or really a mark of the instability um, that I have come to accept, that I understand, I know I know to expect. And that was the kind of experience that generated for me early in, in life, the kind of shame that Mencius that, that I am referring to Mencius to identify, right? Which is the, the sense of oneself that one develops in their very early life, you know, um, as we, again, are partitioned out of oneness, gendered, raced, country, languaged, and also based on who's around us, told about ourselves. We are taught to believe certain things about ourselves through the interpersonal encounters, through the social context. And that for me was an experience that was marked by shame or or generated shame. And similarly, there is a shame that I think other folks would carry that I'm referring to in those tweets, regardless of racial background. Um, though the the example that you or that I mentioned and that you pointed to was the erasure that that sometimes happens from other black folk and the particular pain of of that, right? That something is being defended when a person feels it very important to say you are not x you are y you are not y you are q right something is being protected something is being defended and in that way and as much as racial categories i think emerge from the construction of whiteness actually right that there is the racial hierarchy implicit in that that is being defended even as someone might feel that they as a black person are defending the integrity of their black experience which is different from my black experience and not about whiteness per se although always already is of course so i think very associatively david so if i veer off just bring me back i will just bring me back um i do believe what what i've said and i think the shame I can give you an example, and I don't know if this is something that would be appropriate for the podcast, but I had this friend from college, uh, a Black woman of Jamaican extraction, and she made it known that one of her grandparents was white, but everyone in her family was Black identified. And we fell out of touch 
after college and then reconnected some years later. And I helped her get uh, a board position at an organization that I had a relationship with. And at the end of the first board meeting that she attended, one of our board colleagues who happened to be a white woman who, of course, knew that I was the reason why this friend from college had gotten uh, a board position, came over and asked us about our experience at Princeton and said, you know, what was Princeton like for you, for you two? I responded honestly and said, well, I found Princeton hard as a person of color, as a queer person of color, I found Princeton hard. And the, the friend from college snapped back, like barked, oh, you're not that colored, mm. right? In front of a white person, which is, you know, sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. how dare you, right? I exist in acknowledgement of how I read, you know, the privilege that I possess. And as I said in that tweet, you know, it has given me access to certain things that I know Black friends and family would not be able to access in the same way. Conversations, particularly conversations around race and racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion, so on and so forth, that I am able to participate in because bewildering to the person looking at me because they don't clock me exactly. They don't know how to integrate me into the pathology, like the scaffolding, right, inside their psyche. And so what I know about this experience, right, with this person is that whatever impulse, like whatever it was inside her that led to her saying that, right, which was an erasure, which was violent in, I mean, it was totally fucked up, has in a way nothing to do with me and has everything to do with the way that she feels about her own Blackness and how that is playing out in her experience and the story she is telling herself about her life. She couldn't fathom that somebody who might be able to pass, and I'm not even really sure that I can. I tell some friends and they're like, are you kidding me? Like, in what room are you white? You know, and then I walk into rooms where I'm not seen, you know, where the amount of times that I've walked into rooms that have been populated by all white people who miss me and have let crazy racist shit fall out of their mouths. I mean, I can't even tell you, David, right? And, you know, so that's the instability, right? But what I know about this encounter is that I was the canvas, I was the vehicle for the self-flagellation, I was the, the sounding board of shame, I, I was some agent in her own self-narrative, which I think is marked and defined by shame, because why would she need to do that to me? There's another response that would be one of curiosity. God, we were there at the same time and I didn't realize that you struggled in that way. Yeah. You know, and what prevents that from being available, which, which goes back to the Fanon uh, epigraph, because part of what I'm interested in doing in the book is exploring the obstructions to love, which I think is another way of naming the oneness that I've expressed earlier, right? Like what gets in the way, what makes it hard or feel impossible Right. And this, I think, is an example of that. Well, as a step further into bringing this discussion into the particulars of your life um, moving through the world, let's hear colonialism, the opening poem that orients us geographically to 
and in, in a more specific way racially also to the book. Colonialism. At intersections, I knew to look both ways, as she had taught me, as she had known to look both ways at the port of arrival, not to Ellis Island or to JFK, but to the white blanket of my father, then back to her mother and away. So that when the single summer we returned to the land she had left, and the four of us, she, myself, my two tanned brothers, stood below the open Casablanca sun, waiting on a thinly grassed divider for a sliver to form within the traffic. The air smart and nearly visible as neighbor boys pointed down from windows, Maricani, Maricani, and I dashed through the exhaust of four lanes, not exactly a highway, but still too wide to be crossing and without a crosswalk, no less. She rushed to the other side and slapped my backside hard. Elesh, mon fils, why would you do that to me? I'm listening to Sharif Shanahan read from Trace Evidence. There's so many things that I love about this poem. It feels almost like a parable for one. And I love that it evokes three languages, the speaker looking both ways, two different ways, but also being viewed in two ways, by the mother and by the people in the street. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of many things. For one, your incredible conversation with Safia Alhilo for the latest issue of Mizna, the Arab American literary journal, an issue that she guest edits with a takeover by an all-black production team that looks at the intersection between Arabness and blackness much as your, both of your books do and her books do. And I'm going to highly encourage people and I'll point people to seek out this issue of Mizna. So Safia, outside of this conversation with you in other places, has talked about how she speaks Arabic in her family, in the part of Sudan where her family is from, but that she doesn't know really how much she thought of herself as Arab because mm-hmm. a lot of Arabs don't read her as Arab, and she's experienced a lot of microaggressions in the Arab world, particularly when she was living in Egypt. Things that she didn't realize she was internalizing at the time because she was too young to realize what she was internalizing. She said she used to talk about her black Arabness, but now that doesn't feel right. And she says things more like Arabophone blackness or Arabized Africanness that these work better because Arabness is not entirely indigenous to her Nubian identity. This is my long preface to her asking you in Mizna about how you started thinking about blackness in your poems and how you came to a vocabulary around it. And I kind of want to ask you the same question here um, mm-hmm. about how you came to your own vocabulary within poetry to unpack blackness in your poems but also in light of something you mentioned later in that same conversation, that at the beginning of your journey around talking about the complexities of your particular black experience, that somebody told you as a sort of critique, quote, I mean, I understand where you've arrived, but you could have just been black. You could have just written a book that put you forward as black 
and affirmed that identity is given so people would question or challenge your belonging less. So how did you and how do you speak back to this? I'm sure there are many others who do this very thing that this person is suggesting who are mixed race um, that you yourself very much do not want to do. Thank you so much for that question, David, truly, because it touches in some way the most essential aspect of what it is that I'm trying to do through the poems about race in particular, which is that it would have been a lie for me to do that. <laughs> it would have been a hell of a lot more comfortable. You know, it would have led to fewer awkward conversations. It would have led to fewer situations in which I needed to account for myself or justify why I was in this room or, you know, not in that room. But it wasn't true, you know, exactly. In a way it was. In a way it was in the sense that I have always been who I am. Like the cultural inheritance has always been the cultural inheritance, right? The categories implicated, the racial categories implicated by that inheritance have always been those categories. And what's changed is my consciousness around them, my consciousness around the histories that I emerged from, that my people emerged from, my relationship to that cultural inheritance. And so I think I have come into what was already there. I don't think there's been a fundamental uh, change, you know, which I think is implicit inside this advice that you're, you're actually something else and you could, and, but you're close enough to this so that you could have just been this and why not just assume that position and the experience, right? Like the experience that I had and that I I'm trying to capture, portray, convey inside the poems was something else, right? which emerges from the instability of racial constructs. And instability is a term that we've used to talk about an experience like mine of being racialized in different rooms, depending on, you know, who's looking, right? But it also exists across time and space. It's also part of the mother figure's story, which is that she is of a context where the identity markers that are germane to her experience are Arab, Moroccan, Muslim, woman, eventually mother, and then she gets on a plane and moves her life to the United States that has the traumatic racial history it has, the current racial politics. And there is a question of race that is not brand new, but specific, particular here, right, that she now needs to contend with, right? And that is part of my story. That has to be part of my story. And that has to be part of what I'm trying to offer. You know, and I think there's strength in that truth. But I think one of the the misreadings of the work, like one of the easy misreadings of the work is that these are confessionally oriented poems or that these poems emerge from, you know, a kind of compulsion to be seen, you know, because they emerge from an individual who maybe wasn't. And I don't need to write poems about this, David. I don't need to write poems about my mom. <laughs> like... I don't need to do that. There's no compulsion that that makes this the thing that I, I absolutely must talk about. It's that there is something relevant inside this to every single one of us, regardless of where we are on a racial spectrum, regardless of our acculturation, our level of consciousness around race. 
part of what I'm interested in doing is demonstrating the ways in which the macro, the systemic forces and influences shape the most intimate aspects of our lives, you know? And so the poems that speak to the mom are not poems that, you know, that emerge from a contentious relationship between speaker and mother, although they are that in a way, they are more to me about colonialism. They are more to me about white supremacy. They are more to me about systems that are uh, critiqued, challenged, the integrity of those systems are challenged through these poems. And those are poems that I could only have written by not taking that advice, by not having done what that person told me to do. They are only poems that I could have written by sitting in my truth, which was that this was always a question, which was unanswered, that it's complicated right? That what that person was effectively advising me to do and what that person wanted inside their advice was simplicity. They wanted to flatten it. They wanted it to be knowable, familiar, right? And there was a threat inside my having done what I did, right? Which was uh, reshaped as, you know, in my best interest. How is lying about my experience in my best interest or in the best interest of anybody who's listening? Well, maybe in, in, connection to that question you just posed and tell me if this feels like a stretch as a connection. This reminds me a little bit of when I was talking to Monica Yoon again and her talking about the credentialing that goes on around authenticity. And maybe this is what that speaker was asking you to do that. Yes, she is Korean American. Yes. She has in her case, two Korean parents, but she didn't speak Korean her parents were aspiring to the model minority to to assimilation. She hadn't been to Korea. So this idea of going to her quote unquote homeland to, def to find the material for her work, to perform a certain essentialized authenticness in some ways plays into the ways the white imagination expects to see and view her and her work. And she even goes into talking a little bit I can't remember if it was on the show or, or off air, but just the funding mechanisms are all in that white imaginary too. Like it's easier to get funded to go back to, to go back, quote unquote, back to Korea to have an experience and then bring that back for your Korean American poems. Does this feel related to what this person was suggesting is how would that, maybe the usefulness of you lying about your experience would, would be a, a practical usefulness because of what the culture is like expecting and hoping from you. Yeah, it, it is related a little bit. I mean, I think that person felt that there was a question of authenticity that would be raised about my inhabitation of blackness, my claiming of blackness, you know, my putting myself forward as a black person on earth even while I am acknowledging that within the diaspora, there are many countries and cultures and languages, many histories within a global perception of Blackness, and my belief that there are as many Black experiences happening on Earth right now as there are Black people, right? And so I think this person was trying to protect me. I think this per I don't think it was practical in a professionalizing way or even personally practical. I mean, maybe maybe it was personally practical. It was it was about um, simplifying. Black was a word that was difficult for my mother to even say. 
it wasn't the the reality of our experience, my and my brothers, and I should speak for myself, you know, the reality of my experience was not that I had a white parent and I had a black parent and here we have a light skin mixed race person who is claiming blackness. That isn't what the individual who was giving me that advice feared I would be critiqued about or, you know, critic criticized about. It was that the non-white parent in my instance disrupted the system in a way that bewildered people, that she was racialized as Black to basically everybody who looked at her here, um, but did not conceive of herself as such. And so it seemed to this individual and to many people who finally are wrong, that my claiming of Blackness, when the child of someone who was conferring it to me, but not identifying with it herself, was somehow not a thing to do, was somehow dangerous, was somehow a problem, and that I didn't need to do that. I didn't demonstrate, I didn't need to demonstrate my having done that. I could have just started as Black from page one. And that is a reduction of the complexity. And I think the complexity and the nuance are the way forward. I think complexity and the nuance are the way out, you know? Yeah. Well, when you answered the question in, in Mizna about blackness and vocabulary, you said, when we speak from a particular vantage point, culturally, nationally, religiously, racially, using the language conferred by the context of those positions, we speak from our individual subjectivities in a way that can often flatten the complexity of the question of race on a global scale and over time. Yeah. And so if we're describing blackness or a black experience using language that emerges historically from a U.S. American context, it's kind of anachronistic when we're talking about contemporary depictions and experiences of blackness. And the language fails differently if we're talking across national or cultural boundaries, too. So the language pieces are really complicated and probably require a reimagining on the part not only of black folk from the Arabic-speaking world or black folk period, but of all people who are awake and alive in the mind and spirit. And this made me think of this great essay by John Keane, um, Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness, mm. where, where, among other things, he reveals how blackness shifts in nature when thinking of blackness in Brazil or in the Dominican Republic or in Iraq or Pakistan, and that the absence of translations of literary texts from these writers impoverishes our sense of what blackness is and or could be in the United States. And in the introduction to that essay, uh, Daniel Borzutsky's introduction, uh, Daniel says, Part of the question I'm hearing here is that at this moment in the United States, when opinions about race continue to be presented as essential truths, that it would do a world of good for United Statesians to understand that some of our ideas about race are arbitrary and that others have been constructed to fit the needs of historical establishment powers. This is not to say that racism is not ever present in these other international contexts. Instead, it's to suggest 
that there is value in understanding other countries' imaginings of race so that we can understand how race, both here and abroad, is a concept that is historically specific, culturally manufactured, and politically modifiable according to whatever foundational fictions and realities a nation wishes to produce. It made me wonder, thinking back to the poem, Colonialism, and and being watched by different people, each with their own subject position, nationally and racially, and a poem in three languages, and you having lived in the United States, in England, in Switzerland, and Morocco, if we could spend a moment with any experiences that might come to mind about how your identity is constructed by others as you've moved to different continents um, and been in different spaces. Uh, I know you've spoken about this in other interviews, like working in London, for instance, it's not the same. Yeah, I realized that the the question before the one that you just asked, I don't think I really answered because it, it was about language. The one thing that I would say, I think the problem of language when it came to the identity of our, our family was its unavailability, that there were no terms that accounted for us. While there were terms that existed in a U.S. American context and there were terms that existed in a Moroccan context within our family unit in that apartment in the Bronx where both the United States and Morocco coexisted, there was no language to hold us all. Um, or at least me and my brothers and my mother. And that was, per the first poem that I, I read, part of the problem, you know? I really appreciate what Daniel said, the cultural specificity, the historical moment, right? That it is simultaneous fiction and reality. And I think we as a species, as a culture, have such a hard time acknowledging the truth of the reality of it. You know, like it's 2023 and we are still having to argue that racism is real, that police brutality is as old as the United States of America, right? Like we're still having to make these kind of fundamental foundational arguments that it doesn't seem possible to me at times to really integrate the fiction into that discourse, the acknowledgement, like we, we all intellectually understand that race has no basis in biological or scientific fact. Like I think most thinking people know that and yet that truth exists simultaneously with a kind of social fabric and an interpersonal motion and rhythm and energy that is really dictated by that fiction and therefore very real. And it seems to me that integrating experiences that are maybe to do with or or put a spotlight on or emphasize the fictional components that demonstrate the constructedness of it uh, would enhance and progress racial discourse. And so in, in light of that, thinking about highlighting the constructedness, talk to us about how your selfhood is constructed by others when you're not in the United States compared to the United States. Well, I think as soon as I get on a plane and leave this country, race, <laughs> race, it, it's not that it it becomes a non-factor, but the the charge of it shifts, diminishes, you know, the identity categories or markers that come to the fore shift. And so it depends on where I am. But, you know, as I said in that that interview with Adrian, you know, when I 
was working when I was living and working in London, it was a very international professional context in the sense that there were a lot of folks who were born and raised elsewhere who then went to London for their careers. And so, you know, on my desk at, um, at work, there were, there was uh, an Italian guy, French woman, someone from, from Spain. Right. And so it was really nationality in my case being from New York city, a world city that lots of people were excited about. They would refer to me by city. And so it was nationality and geography that were the identity markers and race was less operative, you know, race as we hold that in the United States uh, was, was less operative. You know, I think Morocco is the only place I've been where my freckles sometimes throw people off, but I am, I more or less fit in. I'm also t taller than a lot of the, the men in my family and in my community there, but there's a way that I, I optically am received. And it's when I speak that one understands there is something else happening. And then that I'm from the United States, you know, begins to mean certain things to certain people. But it's it's ever shifting. It's never static. You know, it's it's dynamic, alive. And it would be totally bewildering and painful in the absence of the understanding that the perception does not make you, right? That the perception is not your truth. Well, I recently and very belatedly discovered the Backdraft series at Guernica magazine, where Ben Perkert for the last five years has been having poets on to discuss a poem in relationship to an early draft of the same poem. Yeah. And for your, yeah, it's a great series. And I just saw that it's end or he's stepping down from it. Yeah, he stepped down. Which makes yeah. me sad. For your recent appearance, you chose the poem Wound, which used to be called existential wound and and people can see both versions i'll point people to to this conversation that you have with ben but given that we're, we've talked a lot about language its limits it's interesting to see this discussion about this poem as one about breaking form that it's a broken sonnet and it's it's something i didn't notice until you both spoke about it um but I'm compelled by this idea of using a received form and breaking it in relation to this examination around language and its limitations in capturing selfhood. Um, and I was hoping you could talk about how the poem is broken, what the wound of the poem is, and whether the way it is broken is part of the wound, um, an enactment of the wound, or maybe it's the opposite, I wonder. And then maybe we could hear wound and, and I was thinking we could hear wound and indeterminacy. I think of this poem uh, kind of in relationship to or in connection with the first poem you had me read, the Mulatto Quadroon, somewhere between, because it's, it's about the necessity, you know, or it emerges from the necessity of a position in order to be comprehensible in language. You know, I think there's a way that the categories of identity pressurize speech, which is to say, no ability within language, like being apprehended, comprehended, 
through the language we use to communicate with others. Like any human being can say any word. That's not what I mean. I mean, cultural dictate, right? Uh, the way that language shapes consciousness and perspective, right? Who, who Who's the who's the individual behind the limits of my language or the limits of my life or the limits of, of what I can see? It's in that respect, right? Like if you are not yet legible, recognizable within a context, a social context, your language is limited. And in the third section of the book, Ars Poetica emerges as a concern, a theme. I am thematizing uh, poetry, a poetic project that kind of captures or is concerned with these other questions of identity and uh, sexuality and family and so on and so forth. And so it's it's the same kind of dilemma that we encounter in that very first poem, though it's expressed poetically through a kind of Ars Poetica. It has taken me years to begin this very poem. And that isn't an exaggeration. You know, I think for the majority of my 20s, David, I was writing poems in a vacuum and knew no poets. I knew Linda Gregg, who I had studied with in college and who had really changed my life and opened me up to all this. She had introduced me to Timothy Liu. I was living in Europe. I was, you know, partnered and having a life there and writing poems and trying to figure out how to write poems. And I was already in my late 20s by the time I came back uh, to the States to pursue the MFA. And during that time, you know, during the, you know, seven, eight years, um, I often felt like I did not know what my subject was or what my subjects were. I didn't have, quote unquote, anything to write about. And I understood that that was such, like intellectually, I understood that that was such a, a preposterous notion. You know, the world is literally and figuratively on fire, you're in love, you are a US American living abroad, like, there were so many elements of my experience and of life on the planet that were worthy of my consideration. And yet there was this sense or this feeling that uh, I didn't have a thing to say, or I did not know how to communicate it that was directly connected to this problem of positionality and language, as I have come to understand it. And the, the greatest developments in my poetic life and my life as a poet, the development of an aesthetic, a voice, you know, um, a continuity of, of aesthetic across poems has really emerged from changes in my life rather than exposure to different poetics, right? Which is important differently. I don't mean to minimize the importance of reading against aesthetic inclination, so on and so forth, but that finally looking at this thing, finally looking at these questions, which were so complicated and so painful, we didn't have the language available to talk about them and therefore suppressed. Finally opening that back up, letting it all out and looking at it was a breakthrough, you know? And I think the people around me at the time, the poet friends who were around me at that time saw it as such and understood it as such. And that was the moment when the poems that were in the first book that were really dealing with uh, you know, Blackness in the Arab world, the instability of mixed race experience, the liminality of it, you know, first started to come and they really poured out of me. And so my experience tells me what I assert in this poem, Wound, is the truth, is accurate. And I was meditating on that and thinking about that as part of a poetic 
uh, development, like part a stage in my a developmental stage in in my being a poet, you know, as a non-racial necessarily, um, but no less important identity marker and label to wear and inhabit as the speaker in certainly the third section of the book does, that as I began to thematize the development of a poetic identity and a poetic voice, that that stage needed to be captured, it needed to be reclaimed. And in thinking about how to do that uh, in a way that was meaningful, that contributed to the book, you know, thinking about the way that form could hold that, trying to imagine the way that form could hold that dilemma or that tension was something that emerged to me near the end of the editorial pro process with, with Tin House. And it was initially, you know, as Backdraft shows, a 13-line stanza. And, you know, I got rid of the existential and I kept wound and thought about how how the form i mean part of part of what i believe about form is that form finally of course is content but that there is wisdom inside the initial offering you know there is formal wisdom or wisdom that would lead to a formal container or shape um, in the initial gesture and so i saw that it was roughly sonnet length and that there were there was a kind of a volta and the final line was initially the 13th line. And it occurred to me that to formally express what the poem was literally saying on the sentence and line level, I could move the 13th line down to the 14th, assert the sonnet form, gesture towards the sonnet form, you know, gesture and echo of it at least, while also uh, not upholding it, you know, asserting it and not asserting it in the same gesture. And so it is a sonnet, but it also isn't in the way that some of the racial categories or that liminality of the racial experience for the speaker is, is experienced or is known, you know. Um, the wound, you asked what the wound is. The wound is placelessness, namelessness, you know, the, the existing inside the interstices and what that means about language interpersonally in the way that you and I are talking right now, but also the making of an art that is constructed of language. Well, let's hear wound and, and indeterminacy. Wound. It has taken me years to begin this poem. I have not known from where to speak. Because I had not been positioned, I had not positioned myself to speak. In this way, it has taken me years to begin not only this poem, but being a person at all, which is required for speaking, it turns out, which is, frankly speaking, the thing I have most wanted, most needed to do, not for my ego, not exactly, but to clear what had positioned me in the first place, in no place. Indeterminacy. The cog in the eye turns until there is nothing left to discern. I sip tea steeped in a kind of lust. If I say I am, you are, he, she, it is, we don't have to agree, but it requires to mean a common rubric. The clock reads the time because we set it. I mean, how else? Who is anyone who is anyone? 
The grass edges outline the grave. Get to living. Listening to Sharif Shanahan read from Trace Evidence. So at the beginning, I mentioned I wanted to start from a philosophical and linguistic place and then move to a more granular, on-the-ground place of sociopolitical questions. The reason for this is partly because I was afraid my interest in some of these questions around Black and Arab identity in North Africa would overwhelm the interview. Because mm. when I had my conversation with Abdella Taya, the Moroccan novelist, when he was on the show, and he, he's not a writer of mixed race, he's an Arab writer from Morocco who grew up in a Muslim family in, in Morocco but lives in France. He has plenty of material from his own subject position to write about and into. A queer man with many family members who stopped speaking to him when he came out. He ins nevertheless insists on describing himself as Muslim and queer, even as he's rejected. And he also refuses to portray France as an enlightened safe haven, writing about both the anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia in his country where he lives now, and also writing into his very fraught relationship with the French language and the fact that he's writing into a language which in Morocco is associated with the elite when he himself comes from a very poor family. It seems like, to me, an entire writing life could be mined from all of this and all of this alone. But one of the things that's attractive to me about his writing is how he does relatively small things on the margins of these stories that have outsized effects on the stories at large. The books are deeply immersed in Arab culture, but sometimes also evoke the world of Morocco pre-Arabization, like the Berber warrior queen Kahina, who led her people against the Arab invasion in North Africa. One book has a character who becomes a Moroccan soldier fighting for France in Vietnam. In one novel, he has a black character who's a hotel cleaner in Cairo, a refugee from Darfur who hates Egypt as he's often stoned in the streets. And I feel like he's arguing that even though this isn't his story in the normative individualistic sense, that in his mind it is. Uh, placing these figures within his story often changed the whole book. Um, I remember when I was preparing for that conversation, realizing that his work both showed me the immensity of what I didn't know about many things that I was curious about, the Arabization of North Africa, blackness in North Africa, the trans-Saharan slave trade. I remember at the time poking around a little bit not because we were going to focus on that, um, but coming across the Senegalese anthropologist uh, Tidian Ndai, who estimates that 17 million East Africans were sold into slavery via the Arab slave trade, and that in his mind, the trans-Saharan slave trade has, has had an, and still has an immense impact on the current state of Africa, and yet that there is this incredible taboo that exists today about writing about it or speaking about it. And he says, quote, most of the African authors have not yet published a book on the Arab Muslim slave trade out of religious solidarity, 
There are 500 million Muslims in Africa, and it's better to blame the West than talk about the past crimes of Arab Muslims. And I didn't know at the time about this anthropologist. You know, I reached out to some anthropology friends, like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, and I discovered since then in preparing for today that those numbers that he puts forth can't be verified. They're contested by other historians, but that the taboo is very, very real. And I also remember when preparing for Abdelatiya coming across an article in Al Jazeera about the slave trade. It was an op-ed that seemed really off linguistically to me. The language got very vague and euphemistic with a sort of shorthand that both performed a gesture as if it were looking at something that I think it was also kind of looking at to dismiss without you feeling like it was being dismissed, a placeholder language so that people don't really need to look. It reminded me of writings I've seen by American Jews about the, uh, the Israeli War of Independence and the Nakba, uh, language that prevents one from having to confront details and specifics or from even having to know them in the first place. And so part of me, as you can tell by the length of this question, um, <laughs> part of me was excited to talk to you selfishly because it was an opportunity for me to learn more as I knew your first book engages with this history of North Africa. Several poems engage with indigenous groups in Morocco whose histories predate Islamicization and Arabization. Several eunuch poems and a poem that mentions a, a leader of the Arab slave trade who is both black and Arab and who owned black slaves. But your latest book doesn't engage with Moroccan history in this way, which is why I've waited to bring this up until later in the interview. <laughs> Nevertheless, I do feel like spending some time with this might be useful as a context around your mother. Your mother, as you've mentioned, is the figure who returns, I think, most often in, in, in the books, more in the first book. Your mother, who is black and Arab, who doesn't consider herself black, She's a huge part of your poetry and is in an entryway into talking about blackness and Arab identity in Africa. I wondered if this, you know, this long non-question of mine, what it brings up for you about her attitudes, maybe more specifically, and then how those do or don't align with your own experiences around being in Morocco yourself in relation to blackness. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think the first thing I would want to say is that while Blackness in North Africa grew as a consequence of, or or the numbers of Black people in North, North Africa grew as a consequence of the, tr the trans-Saharan slave trade, dark-skinned people who would be racialized as Black, which is to say Black individuals, and the language is complicated. We've talked about that at length, but um, I'm approximating for the sake of comprehensibility and the possibility of this conversation. Um, the number of Black people in the North increased as a result of that, that history, but there are indigenous Black groups to the North of Africa. There are subgroups of Berber who are Black presenting, quote unquote. So the Hadatin, as an example, are a Berber people who are desert dwellers who are, are black, are, are darker skinned. So the 
the emphasis on the slave trade is is important, I think, but the the questions that would remain about self-identification in the North, you know, would exist separate and apart from that too. The complexity as I understand it, and as I have gleaned from my mother's life and the lives of my family who were there, you know, is to do with really the the layers of empire and how there were shifts in self-identification as a consequence of the the, the given empirical uh, imperial context. And so you have Arabized Africans, which is to say Arabized ethnic groups, and centuries later, the French come. And so you have Francophone Arabs, you know, in the Maghreb who might be Black presenting, but as a result of these colonial histories, do not identify with Africa or Blackness at all which is what generates the possibility or the po- the possibility of an experience such as my mother's having come here. But what I have found to be true in the North is that there's a really intense colorism. And I wouldn't exactly use racism to describe it, but there's an intense colorism, which is really maybe akin to a caste system in, in India, where darker skinned Arabs are thought to be closer to Black Africa, quote unquote, which is in this imagination, in this conceptualization of what it means to be of Africa, um, an undesirable identification, an undesirable marker. And there are very real differences between the North and Sub-Sahara, of course, and those are cultural, those are national, those are linguistic, you know, even when there is no apparent difference in embodiment. There often is, but even when there isn't, right, that distinction is upheld. And so for a U.S. American to encounter a Black a, a black presenting North African who says, I am Mediterranean, not of Africa, and les Africains sont là-bas, pointing to the South, right, which is a line in one of the earlier poems, you know, that's where the Africans are. It can be surreal to encounter that, you know, I think... Part of the challenge is that because race is a social construct and firstly about the body, but perhaps not finally about the body, we have had in a U.S. American context, Black people who have existed along the full spectrum of possible presentation, which is to say there have been, you know, very light-skinned, green-eyed Black people for as long as there have been Black people in this country. And so if you extract individuals from the North of Africa, where there is an internalized sense of difference between individuals in Sub-Sahara from who they are as individuals in the North, you know, that internalized sense of difference is very real for them. And again, um, kind of jettisoned by real cultural, uh, national linguistic differences. But to take those individuals who distance themselves from sub-Sahara from a quote-unquote Black African-ness, and to put them here, the possibility of them not being racialized as Black, I mean, it's it's unthinkable for a lot of people. It's like, well, what else could you be, right? I think part of what was true for my mother is that, and I want to be sensitive and respectful, you know, because my mother is Herculean and tremendous, just tremendous. But part of the 
the obstacles, part of the challenges that waited for her here were to do with the, the ways in which she was racialized. People thought before they heard her speak that she was African-American, you know, descendants of enslaved Africans in the Americas, which she was not. And when she would assert that she was not, the way that that was often heard or interpreted was like she is denying mm. a part of herself. And that actually isn't true. She's protecting the parts of herself that she perceives are being erased by the assigning of a different category. And so it's the intersectionality of her position. We can't even really talk about her in that way. We can't even really talk about an individual in that context as being both Black and Arab, though I understand why we are. Like, I think it would be more accurate to say that she is who she is, and she has every right to remain who she is, despite where she brings her body and what pathologies and kind of social expectations are put upon that body and wait for her there, right? But Blackness was not even language that she had until she learned her fifth language, which was English. There were different terms, right? There was a different, the whole orientation to bodily presentation was distinct from the way that we pathologically talk and cultivate, talk about and cultivate it here. So I think those were her circumstances. And I, you know, I'm, I'm treading really carefully because it's so fraught and complicated and I want to be respectful to everyone involved. Um, and I hope that I've conveyed as, as honestly and openly as I can, the complexity of her experience. But what I absolutely do not think is that she need revise her self-concept because now in a place where a different identity is put upon her. I don't think that that is true. Like, I think that that's another violence. I think that's just another psychic erasure and is violence. I think what is true and what is necessary is to consider the circumstances that she emerges from when children are involved, when there is a first generation Black American experience that is happening as a consequence of her cultural national origin, but not an extension of it, not a thing passed down, it's a thing passed through, right? That here means something else. And in the absence of having been acculturated as a Moroccan speaking Arabic, you know, I was told I was Muslim, but, you know, I'm Muslim extracted is how I would talk about it. I am not Muslim identified, right? The, the consciousness around identity and self-concept was U.S. American for me, necessarily by virtue of where I was raised and the schools I was going to and who I was talking to and who I was around. And so there's something received from her that is constitutive for me, though given the context of origin for her, less meaningful there. There was a line in a poem um, that didn't make it into the book. It was a question. It was, and why is it the parts of her she cannot see are the only parts of me that I can? Right, was the line. And the poem didn't hold, so it didn't make it in, but that was the sense. Line. 
I hope I've answered that really important non-question. <laughs> <laughs> let's, I, I have more I want to I want to share, but um, but first let's hear the poem Two Rooms Down the Hall," the which is one of the the mother poems in the new collection. Two Rooms Down the Hall. A second death in as many days, and I succeed at being strong and contained until the tweet that says, I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of breaking my mother's heart. I am flesh, two rooms down the hall from my mother's flesh, holding in my hands the news which is not new, and today, at last, I understand. How primal, how intelligent her need to be done with our sorrow and our joy. Anything at all thought ours, and the self she refused to let her body take on. By making a useful choice through a man made useful by her choosing, a man of Irish Scandinavian stock, the only criteria I've insisted in angrier moments. So that her boys, my brothers and I, or at least our bodies emerged from hers looking Spanish, maybe Greek or Italian, three boys each passing closer, when she tells me not to before that I am Black, she is saying I love you. She is saying I want you to live. I see now. When she told my brother she wished he'd just find a nice blonde girl and settle down, I took her by the face and staring into her even-keeled nonchalance told her I love you and you are crazy. Today, I see. I am flesh. I am free to stand, to sit, to breathe to play tag or with a toy gun, to walk away or to run, to put my hands up, to ask why. Today on a walk I take to release how it feels to be shut out. This time by the editor of the African Diasporic Journal who asked not me, but someone who didn't know me, was I black? I cross 112th in Amsterdam and suddenly am 20 years old again, drunk, out of control in pain without knowing why trying to jump a taxi because I've spent my money on booze and the cop whose car pulls into the crosswalk to block me, to stop me as I run, gets out and says to me, if you don't pay the man, I'll arrest you. Turning from the news, I complain now to a friend. I don't know why we, all of us, should want to live. It's also futile and banal. It's also pointless, even when it's good. As my mother rests inside her safe and dusty room, next to the man she crossed an ocean to find. I have thought her wrong to think that we would need saving. But what do I know of having to choose one violence over another? Asleep now, she rests inside her flesh, my father close beside her on his back, his forearm across his eyes. He who chose her too, and over his own family, he knew to tell us. Having learned early, you must cross whatever line you have to cross. Been listening to Sharif Shanahan read from Trace Evidence. Thinking about your exploration of what language can hold in relation to selfhood, but also in particular in relation to a selfhood that is defined by its instability, and the line about your mother in the poem you just read and the self she refused to let her body take on. 
I wanted to spend a moment with the taboo around speaking about or looking into speaking or writing about the trans-Saharan slave trade or Arab anti-blackness in North Africa. I read and watched a lot of interviews with the author of the book, Black Morocco, Dr. Shauki El-Hamel, a professor of history and a specialist on slavery and race studies in North Africa, and also panels he was on about race and racism, all with African scholars that were either Arab or black or Arab and black. The speakers were always very careful. You could feel how fraught the conversation was on the one hand, and yet how important it was to the panelists to be there nonetheless. Many would preface their remarks with how Islam, at its essence, is an egalitarian vision, that in Muhammad's eyes there's no difference between a non-Arab Muslim and an Arab Muslim, a black Muslim and a white Muslim but also while noting that the gulf between this radical vision and the embodied cultural practices was was quite large, including at times the enslavement of black Muslims. And Choki notes that speaking into this is fraught also because of widespread Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism, that the people stepping forward to speak into this are themselves from communities with real vulnerabilities. And also, surely white slavery apologists would use this in regressive ways. But he and the others insisted that if we continue to use this, these reasons, as the reason not to speak and not to do scholarship, that it perpetuates real tangible and ongoing discrimination and harm against black communities in North Africa today. He talks about how there are very few monographs on the history of the trans-Saharan slave trade and that academic endeavors to restore the forgotten role of blacks in North Africa is only just starting and that constructions of race around blackness in North Africa are not a European import, but predate European colonization. And Salah Travesi, a medieval Arab manuscript expert and a member of the International Scientific Committee of the UNESCO Slave Root Project, which was created partly to speak into and break this taboo, he talks about how much is actually in the record from the beginnings of the arrival of Arabs in Africa onward, that Arab documentary sources show that the trans-Saharan slave trade was, in his mind, as devastating as the transatlantic slave trade to Africa. And more to the point that it's important to break the taboo on speaking about it because the long-standing stereotypes of black people as inferior or other, or associated with various negative attributes, continues to impact uh, the education system and the school curricula today. Of course, it's hard not to think also about what's going on right now in the last couple weeks and months in Tunisia with the president having just called 
sub-Saharan African migrants, part of a criminal conspiratorial plan to turn Tunisia into, quote-unquote, just another African country, one that doesn't belong to the Arab and Islamic nations anymore, with amnesty issuing an alert because of the ongoing waves of anti-black mob violence since that speech. And then, lastly, I wanted to juxtapose something personal and anecdotal with something structural. One of the fellow panelists, the freelance journalist Ismail Kushkush, mentions how this is the first time in his 48 years that conversations he often had with his family, he was now witnessing being had publicly. And I think of this when I also think of Chuki al-Hamel when he writes about how the multi-part documentary he participated in called Slavery Roots or Les Routes de l'Esclavage, which was broadcast on the European channel Arte, which I think is a joint German and French station, how Al Jazeera also aired this show, Slavery Roots, but they wouldn't purchase part one, which spans from the 5th to the 14th century and focuses on the Arab Islamic empire in relation to the African slave trade. So they air the documentary as if it started with part two. And he also notes an absence of language in Arabic to talk about this, to discuss this. Obviously, this isn't the focus of our time today, and it's also something that you focus more directly with in your debut, but it feels like an atmosphere in your work overall. This question of what is being spoken, of what is possible to speak and name, and what speaking or not speaking does. I'll share a whole bunch of other things with listener supporters that I came across. Really interesting things about questions of indigeneity in Morocco, the status of Jews, and how it's different in various places across the Maghreb during uh, colonial era and post-colonial era some writings by M. Norbessi Philip about her time in Morocco that also, I think, speaks into the silence. But if this raises further thoughts, um, of course I'd love to hear them. Otherwise, perhaps we can hear the beginning of the long poem, the one that anchors the center of this book, that ultimately is about your arrival in Morocco and your bus accident when you go there, called On the Overnight from Agadir. Thank you for that, David. And I think what you've just shared, I think, really is a testimony to how profound the culture of silence around this subject and how old it is. You know, part of my learning and my healing, frankly, around these questions was to do with coming to an understanding that the culture of silence within my own home around these subjects because so complicated and fraught and we didn't really have the language available to even go there was was also true on a, a kind of cultivated mass scale that there really is difficulty in my experience a profound difficulty in engaging openly around these questions of blackness and africa in particular and you know, I, I forget the scholar that you mentioned who said that there was really an absence in Arabic to discuss these phenomena well within within the the language. I found that 
in my own experience that I would meet Moroccans who were black presenting, you know, and again, that's rough approximate language because there are so many ways to present so many ways that black people present, but who would be genuinely bewildered, genuinely bewildered if you referred to Morocco as an African nation, right? And there was a conflation of black and African in the experiences that I had and the conversations that I tried to have at various points when I went to Morocco and then um, while I was on the Fulbright for those two, two months before the bus accident, where even in the presence of a, a black embodiment or a, a clearly descendant African person, you know, which I think within a US American imagination, I think the term would probably be like a sub-Saharan heritage. There was a discussion of Africa as beginning at the desert. And we in the North are on pas le français ici. And the desire was to be in proximity of, of whiteness, of, of cultures that are born of Western Europe. I know Chuki, and Chuki and I have had many conversations and we haven't we haven't met, but his his book was really important to me because it was the first English language history, book-length history of black people in the Maghreb and in Morocco specifically that I could find. And I think I was 32 when I encountered it, you know, like that was the first time that I was really able to gain insight and understanding into the length of this history and how the problem was the ways in which it had been shrouded in, you know, in mystery and hidden and that individuals who like my mother, as an example, like my, my ancestors who were a part of a black history in the North would themselves not even speak about it in that way, yeah. you know, regardless of the language that we're speaking in. It's not like a terminology issue. It's, it's a conceptual issue, right? That there it is geographically dictated. If you are of the North, you are not like a sub-Saharan. And, and I, I want to be careful too, to say that I don't think that this is true for all Moroccans or that, you know, colorism, the kind of intense colorism that I'm speaking to that generates these fissures and these uh, divisions uh, would be upheld by all Moroccans. But I'm saying that I personally have encountered a lot of it and uh, very close to home. Would you be open to reading the opening to Overnight from Agadir? Sure. This is from On the Overnight from Agadir. The poem has a, an epigraph uh, from Darwish. Your cause and your life are one. Don't go to discover your roots, Ladybug says. If you want to look for roots, go and look at a tree. Another day at a cafe, avoiding, pretending. Why did you come here? Tell me why. If you want to die, go ahead and die. Do it quickly. If you want to be dead, you can be dead. But the days are long and always the same. But the nights are long and always the same. I feel that time has me in a way. Do you know? A tree. But do you see its roots when you look at a tree? The syringa from the cover of that playbill in high school haunted me for weeks, its net of empty branches. See, that's the problem, that right there. 
how the mind moves from the one thing that's here and suddenly I am 55, though it's still two o'clock on Tuesday. Two o'clock on Tuesday happens in Morocco too. My mother says we are European and I shake my head at her desperate face. My mother says we speak French in Morocco and I shake my head. Morgan says, maybe it could be good for you to travel to the motherland. It's necessary trauma for each of us. I call my ex-partner in Brussels with whom I lived in seven cities on three continents and say, Habibi, I think I just want my own apartment and a dog and to stop working like a mule. And we laugh. Morgan says, you have to go. Why do I sense that I cannot trust what I feel in my chest? Are there even trees in North Africa? If you don't want to live, you don't want to live anywhere. Avoiding what? The, I'm sorry, but there's no other way to say it, meaninglessness. So that is why you get on a plane and go to the third world for a year. I don't know. Clearly, I don't know. And the third world as a phrase is so, did the colonizer kill or make thrive? Did the colonizer kill or make thrive? Honestly, who cares? I don't need history to justify me. I just want a dog. I wouldn't mind having a Moroccan lover, I tell my shrink, out of things to say. Perhaps taking a Moroccan lover, ideally a Black one, will help you feel connected to yourself in a new way and rejuvenate your enthusiasm for living, your sense of purpose. I fire my shrink on the spot, call the second one as I'm leaving the office and fire her too. On the street, a Frenchie shits on the curb, her owner on his phone looking the other way. I know exactly who I am. It's that there is no point. And then we, I'm telling you, just go and look at a tree. Then in the early morning hours on a bus almost returned to Rabat, a razor of light slits my eye down the center. Suddenly the bus on its side, dirt in the air, stars in the dirt. I'm listening to Sharif Shanahan read the opening to the long poem in the center of his new collection, Trace Evidence. So one of the areas I most happily got lost in was around the historic performance of the Moroccan football team at the World Cup, the farthest an African team has gone before. And as a representative of Africa, how it created a lot of angst across the continent when one of the players called it a victory for the Arab and Muslim world but failed to mention Africa. And this is one area I couldn't stop reading about because it, I think it speaks to something really fascinating about Morocco's own identity, which I think, like yours, is, if not impossible, really difficult to capture in language. Thinking of a line in your first collection where you say, I'm beginning to understand I'm African, something your mother responds to by saying, now, how can that be, child? How can that be? And with Safia, for Mizna, you say, I've had to think about how to reconcile or hold the non-American origin of my blackness with my Americanness. And then around the World Cup and, and the game between France and Morocco, you tweeted, gentle and respectful reminder, as we talk about colonialism, 
French occupation of Morocco, that the Arabization of North Africa was itself a kind of colonial history. I'm rooting for my people, which is to say Africans living beneath layers of empire. That's all. Carry on. A lot of the many articles that I came across about Moroccan identity in relationship to the team focused on fault lines and on fraught histories, not just whether Morocco was African, but even within Morocco, Moroccans who were Amazigh or indigenous, not considering themselves necessarily Arab, also not wanting to be erased in this discussion. But there was one article I particularly loved that celebrated the impossibility of categorizing Morocco called Everyone Has a Stake in Morocco's Football Team by Brahim El Gabli, a black Amazigh indigenous scholar, which speaks to how players were flying the Amazigh flag and the Palestinian flag in addition to the Moroccan flag, about the nearly one million Moroccan Jews in Israel that were cheering for the team, which all brings me back to how you said in the Poetry Magazine podcast that you weren't interested in erasing difference, but in those moments when our constructed sense of self falls away. Mm-hmm. Because it, it feels like what happened with the team, which challenged borders of language, of nation, of race and religion, could be viewed as one of those moments. And in that spirit, I was hoping you'd read two short pieces from the third section of your book and then talk to us about what defines the poems in the third section versus the ones in the first two. I was thinking of self-portrait as homo sapiens, and while I wash my face, I ask impossible questions to myself and those who love me. Sure. Self-portrait as homo sapiens. The idea of integration, the illusion of separateness, the denial of oneness, the statement of feeling, the illusion of speech, the language of illusion, the discernment of being, the statement of denial, the illusion of idea, the being of speech, the oneness of denial, the separateness of language, the integration of integration. While I wash my face, I ask impossible questions of myself and those who love me. Specks of toothpaste fleck the mirror, A fan spins dust in the hall. I find this is it, too vulgar to accept. So I wait for a new starting point, as though life will begin there and then. Do you know what I mean? Not what I'm saying, what I mean. Is it possible my function is to hold all the intricate interstitial pain and articulate clarity? Tie a boat to my wrist, I sprout wings. Give me a pair of shoes, I grow fins. Once an hour, I trick myself into focus. I look into the glass as I look through it. When the new beginning comes, what then? Does life suddenly reset like an Atari? 
does meaning emerge assertively and without invitation. The task is to live well enough with you. But how? How do you know what you want if you don't tell you, if you don't hear you? You've been listening to Sharif Shanahan read from Trace Evidence. So what, if anything, puts these poems in, in the third section, along with uh, two other poems that you've read earlier, Wound and Indeterminacy? The short answer to that question is time and the speaker's relationship to time and ability or inability to inhabit time and to be in the present moment. But I want to I wanna share a little bit about how I came to understanding or realizing that this was a part of this book and that these poems that constitute the third section really were essential to the movement and the development of the book, which is, you know, I said much earlier in our conversation that often the the discussion about race as a social construct that would maybe point to the moments at which it dissolves or falls apart, which you just, you know, referred to a moment ago, um, can often feel theoretical to people. You know, it can often feel detached from human experience, right? We understand that this is a social construct and we can think about it as such. And uh, the impact that that construct is having on lives is sort of separate and apart from the discussion about the instability and the constructiveness. And part of what I wanted to demonstrate was that this racial experience too informed and dictated a kind of life, a kind of human experience. And its impact is maybe less clearly related to questions of privilege or the absence of privilege, which is usually the lens through which we think about the impact of race, right? By demonstrating other intangible, psychic, emotional consequences. And so, you know, what the third section of the book, I think, is really performing is all the ways in which one's relationship to time, which is their measure of a life. I mean, it is in a way one's life, right? We say an hour. And what does that mean, really? That means human experience. That means experience that an individual is actively uh, making, inhabiting, contributing, or avoiding, right? So the third the third section spells out all the ways in which the questions of identity that are explored, you know, really directly and in, from a, a variety of angles in sections one and two dictate or inform this relationship with time. And so the epigraph of the section comes from a Roka, a Roka poem, you know, and the, the translated rhyme reads, future, who won't wait for you, right? Which emerges for me and within the context of the, the book from an anxiety about what the future might hold and what one needs to do now in order for the future to hold something, you know, positive or to be something that one looks forward to. But the attention is so fixed on what is not here and now that it becomes problematic. And it's so fixed on what is not here and now because the here and now, for all the reasons that the book has already spelled out up until this point, feels impossible to inhabit, right? That the mind, the psyche has to move somewhere. It has to go somewhere. And so that's sort of the way that we enter this third section. And then there are different different angles of relationship to time that some of the poems take up. So I'm thinking of the uh, on exiting the Universität Spital Zurich, New Year's Eve 2015, you know, and the speaker is 
in a city where he had once lived and is now leaving the hospital and a feeling that he had only felt in Zurich, in, in that place at that time of life, suddenly populates his, his body, his mind, his heart, his feeling again. And the superimposition of who he is now leaving the hospital and who he was then and, you know, kind of re returning or reverting back to who he was then as an existential question. And the poem asks, right, like, is this my life? Was this a possible life? Was this a portion of the life? Or was I meant to be here? Was I meant to come here and integrate this self? I think integration is, you know, interestingly, it's the final word in, in the first of these two most recent poems you asked me to read. Um, but, but the integration of aspects of self that would inhabit and exist in the world that are occluded by the original problem of identity I think is part of something that I have lived, you know, that is part of something that I have needed to do in my own life in order to heal and uh, to, to move beyond um, the stasis of some of these questions. Um, but it's something that's also happening actively in the book. And I think we, we see that in the fig tree poem where there are these self-referential moments and the, the speaking self kind of interrupts itself in the, in the moment of the poem. And then that becomes the poem. Right. So there was a self in this hospital poem, you know, as an example that the speaker needed to integrate. And so it's really about time and present moment inhabitation and how to be here and now, how to be in the here and now when doing so seems difficult, but also excruciating. <laughs> I, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned the fig tree poem because I really found it satisfying to encounter it late and to have it be in conversation explicitly with previous poems. Yeah. It's really wonderful the way it, it folds back and ruminates on itself. Thanks. Yeah. And I think, you know, the worthiness poem that the book closes on is very much in the vein of the third section in that it, it makes explicit statements and asks questions about time and time passing and being here and now. But there was a way that that, that poem too held space for the other threads of the book, which in, in my reading and in my hope for that poem, you know, braided together all of the constitutive elements of the book into this final, you know, three and a half page meditation, mm. right? And it certainly too is a culmination of the, the part of the third section that focuses on the Ars Poetica and the the thematizing of of being a poet as an identity and the thematizing of making poems there there's a line that says being here now with you speaking here now with you is the most difficult thing i can do the presence it requires is agonizing feels fatal you know and that comes at the end of the section but that maybe is like the underpinning of these time poems i want to talk for a moment about therapy in the opening to Overnight from Agadir that you just read, you, you fire two therapists. Uh, but therapy and therapists show up periodically in the book, mostly bad therapy. And I remember long ago now during one of my conversations with Morgan Parker talking about therapy. And I'm conjuring this entirely from memory, and it's possibly faulty memory, so don't quote me here. Um, but... In, in my memory, how being depressed and having anxiety as a black woman in America is actually a very rational thing to be 
and that therapists who see things entirely as individual and subjective and can't look at the structural, who can't talk about racism, that this is a huge obstacle to care. And curious, I, I looked up some statistics and in 2015, for instance, 4% of psychologists were black, according to the American Psychological Association. Um, and Morgan even has an afterword in her YA novel dedicated solely to how to find a therapist. And perhaps the moment that most sticks with me from Claudia Rankin's Citizen is when she makes an appointment with a therapist to address her own mental health concerns. And when she shows up at the woman's house, the therapist apparently couldn't even imagine that this new client would be black and so screamed at her to get off of her property, not realizing she was coming there for care. So I wondered if you could speak to both how you bring therapy into trace evidence and also to what end you bring ther therapy into trace evidence. Thank you for that. There are three mentions of therapy, uh, as I recall. The first is a poem called Countertransference. Uh, the second reference is, you know, in the part of On the Overnight from Agadira that I read a moment ago. And then the, the third is called psychotherapy. And, you know, I think the culmination of that thread, right, or that like sub theme is really in, you know, the third poem, psychotherapy, which is a one line, a one sentence poem for all the years you have yourself submitted to this process energetically at first, then incredulously exhausted it may be all you needed to hear. You heard in the very first office, the one with the plastic gladiolus flanked by coiling plants on the table beneath the light switch. Abandoned is not a feeling, it's an interpretation of events. And there was one of those uh, Instagram accounts, I think like poetry is not a luxury that shared this one. And it got a lot of love, but then it also got a comment from someone who was both a poet and a psychotherapist who said, wait, wait, no, abandonment is, abandonment is totally a feeling, you know, like it can be both. It can be not a feeling, you know, it could be an interpretation of events. And I'm not saying that people don't feel abandoned, you know, and no therapist told me that, right? This is a product of my imagination and my uh, integration of the work that I've done in therapy and the lessons I have, I have learned, you know, but the idea that the story we tell ourselves about our lives and what has happened to us, you know, is de dependent on, emerges from a process of interpretation of those events on some level. Someone could leave to save himself and it might have the consequence of abandonment. It might have the consequence of someone feeling abandonment, but is that what happened? You know, it depends on the perspective. It depends on the vantage point. It depends on the interiority of the soul, the mind that's engaging the question. I think part of what is all over the book and what these poems touch or what I hope these poems touch is, you know, they're a consequence of or an expression of the psychic distress that, you know, the instability of these categories and the challenges of identification for the speaker, you know, is having to navigate, right? 
the way that these conversations about race as a construct can often feel theoretical or detached from lived experience and also a conversation that I could understand folks would say, certain folks would say is one of privilege, the possibility to even have a conversation about the instability of racial constructs or this racial category is a mark of privilege because I myself am firmly within, right? And I think it's important to do that in part because there are ways in which the racial scaffolding holds. Of course it holds, which is why it persists. And so I think what I'm trying to do with those poems is just to demonstrate the depth, the impact, even for an individual who might be perceived to possess privilege. These circumstances can have a deleterious effect. I think also, you know, I said much earlier that part of my interest in this book, in my work, I think it's it's kind of uh, a core element of my, my vision as an artist is to demonstrate the ways that the systemic is inside the micro, the macro is inside the micro, the way that um, the larger structures or systems that we live in have the most intimate reach. It's not just between parent and child, it's within self, it's within relationship to self. And so the counter-transference poem, as an example, stages a scenario in which there might be a kind of racial mutuality or a speaker who is seen and and witnessed um, by the mental health practitioner that they are working with and yet the system is such that there is division even there you know yeah. it's like there's no there's no place that it doesn't touch well, one thing I would love to hear about in the realm of the psychological is something you say in the poem Fig Tree, mm-hmm. that you're worried about safety in the work, that the psyche tries to protect a person from the original wound. And I wondered if you could speak to how you gauge risk in your work in relation to the way you see your own mind trying to reposition itself to the wound in ways that might foreclose risk. How do I stay safe? How do I keep myself safe? No, actually gauge risk. How do you make the poems risk? Mm. When you say you're worried about safety in the work mm-hmm. and you can see the psyche protecting a person from the wound, that seems like noticing that mechanism of the mind. I read that as an interfe- a possible way the mind can protect you from actually engaging with the work that you want to engage with. Mm. But maybe I'm reading. Yeah, that no, I think the way that I understood that moment, the way that I understand this, the psyche uh, pr- protecting you, right? The the safety that it's about safety is to do with the limits of the inquiry, like that which we can not yet unearth, right? Like that there are portions of the conversation that are up until now unavailable to me because the psyche is doing its work, which is to protect you, and part of what's believed, I think, in psychoanalytic thinking is that the psyche will only allow you to feel what it knows you can tolerate. And that new pain, therefore, is actually a mark of growth. Because there is a capacity, there is an unearthed or renewed capacity to engage more deeply with something that was so painful or traumatic that it needed to be suppressed, that it could not be engaged with. And so I think the risks are inherent in the subjects and themes that I'm talking about. Like it, it's a minefield, <laughs> you know, and 
I'm aware of that. And I think the the power for me is in cleaving to the truth. And there are many truths, and that's part of what I'm cleaving to. But to really just ask, how could it be that a child is raised in a city by a mother that he has come to perceive as Black, who herself does not perceive herself as Black? How can that be? Right? And just talking about that, just putting language to that, I want to believe is enough of a contribution. Drawing attention to the narratives that are less familiar is a risky thing to do, is a dangerous thing to do. There's a a line in a poem called Self-Determination with the Question of Race in which I say, where the speaker says, I take nothing from you when I say I am. And that is something I believe to be true, right? But I think many individuals experience as untrue, right? That for me to use language and claim something for myself that another person might claim for themselves differently seems to be a taking away, you know, seems to be a diminishment or a lessening, you know? Well, in both of your books, you spend, I think, more time with the question of race, but they both also engage with queerness. And I wondered how much or little you see these questions of identity around race and language intersecting with questions of queerness. If we go back to the first line of Mulatto Quadroon, I want to tell you what for me it has been like to speak at all I must occupy a position. Is this conundrum one that extends in any way to being queer, or is the positionality of queerness one that has more language available Mm -hmm. associated with it in a way that your particular mixed-race identity does not? I think the same dynamic does not exist in my experience and therefore on the page, but that the the dynamic, the conundrum, as you called it, uh, racially uh, for the speaker influences and even dictates, I wouldn't say queer identity so much as I would say uh, sexuality and love between cis men, you know, so the very next poem, you know, and thinking about curation and how to order, and I love thinking about the way that a group of poems comes together to form a section or a book, you know, it's like a great joy for me. But the very next poem was uh, a poem between lovers and a relationship is ending. And what was important to me about that, so that's a poem called Imago, and it starts stay, I repeated stay, and each time I said it, you stepped further away. And it it was about the ways in which that relational dynamic, the racial circumstances, the instability, the unknowability, was seeking resolution within the re- relational context, right? And so it wasn't that the, the speaker's relationship to his queerness was marked by the same dynamic that his relationship to his mixedness or to his blackness is marked by it was sort of causal or consequential, right? Like what is what is the impact of all the race stuff, if you will, within a love or sex, sexual context? But I, I really hope that one of the echoes here would be the poem ends. And so the feeling was not one of loss exactly, though I have lost and lose, but completion. The loss had occurred, I think, before we tried to give ourselves a name. And that assertion of naming ourselves as a couple, as partners, as companions, 
comes right after a three-page meditation on naming, right? So it's it's like those, and I don't expect there to be a through line between those two moments for a reader, but it's an essence. It's it's an unconscious element that would shape the reading process. Talk to us a little bit about, you keep pulling in the critique of your work into your work or the critique of your pursuit of the work. People saying to you, lovers, teachers, are you being too serious? Is this work too heavy? Mm -hmm. It gets brought into the poems. And I wondered if you could talk about that impulse. It's a meta impulse, but it doesn't feel like it's a game. It feels, it feels very um, enriching to the poems. But talk to us a little bit about the critique of you in relationship to this pursuit of self-knowing in poetry where you take it and you bring it into to multiple poems. Yeah, I think I think the moments that you're referring to are poetic expressions of a phenomenon that I experience racially, which is that I I need to be aware at times of the way in which I am imagined by the person that I am engaging with, interfacing with, you know? And it's that kind of double consciousness, right, that Du Bois spoke of, but it's it has sometimes felt like a triple or quadruple consciousness in my situation. And so part of what I'm interested in doing in the book is expressing, demonstrating, spelling out, playing out the ways in which the circumstances and the questions of identity are expressed interpersonally in really intimate spaces, are expressed within relationship to self, um, and are also expressed within, you know, in the sexual relationships, and then also artistically in one's self-realization as an as an artist and as a poet uh, specifically. So it's it's an adjacent gesture, you know, or the mirror gesture of the kind of racial perception and the poetic gesture, such that I'm imagining in those moments in the drafting of those poems, I'm imagining how in a way my body might be perceived in this particular context by this particular individual, what a reader might be imagining in their engagement with the poem about my awareness, consciousness, blind spots. You know, one of the critiques that was very superficially offered to me once by someone who I think had encountered a single poem was that I wasn't thinking diasporically enough <laughs> when when that was part and parcel of what I was doing, that that was, you know, it's related to readership in a way to me, David, because it it's, you know, it's become necessary or anyway, it has felt necessary to me at times. And maybe it won't as I move deeper into my life as a poet to account for the imagination what what I suspect based on my lived experience might be imagined or perceived based on these lines, you know, and it's a it's a gesture that actually it's a concern that actually helped me uh, finish the poem worthiness, which is the final poem in the book, because there there's a way that that poem, which is a very long poem consisting of one line stanzas, moves between various threads. And the logic of the poem is juxtaposition. You know, how and when do you get out of one thread and into another thread? When does the thread come back, right? It's curatorial, right? And this concern about perception and accounting for, anticipating certain perception was a guiding light as I curated that poem because I would make a statement that 
would appear to be or to some would be provocative. Like scientists say there is no single physical attribute that establishes a so-called race. I can hear someone hear that. I can imagine someone hear that and say, he's saying that race doesn't exist, that race isn't real, you know? And the very next gesture in the poem is scientists say trauma uh, inhabits the body cellularly and is passed on generationally, which is to say, hold up, no, this is quite real. There is a consciousness that that is aware of uh, the reality, reality of it, even after it's just affirmed the fiction of it. So that's how I see that gesture. Well, in the spirit of your opening epigraph, I believe in the possibility of love. That is why I endeavor to trace its imperfections, its perversions. An epigraph by Franz Funnel, the black Caribbean political philosopher who fought for the independence of North Africa from the French. Let's go out with a reading of Control and My People. Beautiful, okay. Control. In the Pornhub video, two houseless men suck each other on a subway bench. It's late at night, but not late enough no one is around. The people are outraged, call the men disgusting, New York and humans disgusting, while they continue to record. I have the space inside my body to feel the two men, their commitment to pleasure absent basic comfort. The one's face nearly neutral, as though his friend's mouth and the sting of existence canceled each other out, almost like a mannequin, just there. On Hyde Street yesterday morning, walking briskly in no clear direction, I saw a man on the opposite sidewalk, a motorcycle parked at a right angle to his feet. He put one hand on a handle, the other on his crotch, and glared above the slow-moving traffic at me. The question in his face, its own answer. When I tell you I don't know what to do with my life, I mean I don't know how to stay inside it. Joy, Gary says, is a feeling of profound gratitude. And before I can ask for what, for having come how far I have come, I celebrate my friend and think at once we should be grateful then for surviving a country that makes of survival a victory and not a right. We talk about our boyfriends, syntax, Nella Larson's passing. Gary leans across the couch to touch my chin. We were lovers once, briefly. I look at him, look at me. Try to love yourself, darling, he says. You're going to be here a long time. Sorry, I'm having a moment just shaking my head looking at the poem because I just think of how, I'm just thinking about a lot of things um, and how much growth was necessary for so much of this book to even have been written. My people. I have longed to say my people, not because I was born of two peoples, of blue tiled walls and strip malls, not because I don't know where I belong or with whom, or worse, who I am, as onlookers have in their pity proclaimed, the lovers too, after they've exited my body, which they felt emboldened to name. I have wanted to say my people, and to be clear, 
to all people, to any you imagined by the mind of an embodied you that was also first imagined. I am interested in repair without shame. I am interested in restitution with anger. I am interested in anger as love, in having anyone who hears the phrase see it vanish into the edge of what they know, to know how far I mean it to reach. My people as redundancy, as symbol of the first truth, immutable, almost banal in its assertion. If you are on this earth, you are of this earth. Thank you so much, Sharif. Thank you so much, you know, and just to bring this all back full circle to the sense of oneness that we were talking about at the beginning and also the Fanon epigraph and the imperfections and the perversions of love. I mean, I think what I believe as a human being, David, is that nobody has any idea what's going on or why any of us are here. <laughs> you know, I'm definitely and, in that club. <laughs> right? That that's, that that's what we're looking at. And the question of what we can do in the face of that, you know, to me, like intuitively has always seemed to be to love one another. And it feels sentimental to say that. It feels unrealistic, simplistic, pat, you know, but I don't think it needs to be any of those things. And I think that we aren't loving one another, that we aren't loving the earth is the reason why we have more urgent things to tend to, or it would seem that we have more urgent things to tend to, like, oh, the climate crisis, which we can't even all accept as a species is real. We can't even get on board that this is fact, you know, and that dissonance must, it seems to me, be to do with the competing agendas and priorities that are born out of our separateness, that are born out of an absence of love and a sense of oneness, even as we navigate this world in different bodies and languages and cultures and so on and so forth. Thank you, Sharif. Thank you. We've been talking today to Sharif Shanahan about his latest collection with Ten House, Trace Evidence. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Sharif Shanahan, there are two other Morocco-specific episodes that I think would pair nicely with it. One is the conversation with Abdullah Taya, which we talk about today. But there's also an older one with Leila Lalami, where she talks about the account of Cabeza de Vaca's arrival in Florida in the 1500s, but tells it from the perspective of the black Moroccan slave that accompanied him on that voyage. For the bonus audio archive, Sharif contributes a reading of a long excerpt of what will ultimately become his third book, a polyvocal, epistolary book called Dear Whiteness. This joins bonus audio from everyone from Kava Akbar to Ayad Akhtar, from Phil Metris, Victoria Chang, and Ada Limon, among many others. 
The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community, including copies of the Mizna Southwest Asia North Africa Black Takeover issue to the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. And every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapati to Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.